0: This is one of the best action set pieces in Daniel Craig's tenure as James Bond. There's a car chase here that for me is the best car chase sequence that I've seen in a Bond movie since Goldfinger.
1: This is the Box Office Podcast. Today is Wednesday, August 25th, day three of the long-awaited CinemaCon 2021. I am Rebecca Polly, Deputy Editor of Box Office Pro, the only magazine in North America exclusively dedicated to covering the movie theater industry. And I am joined once again by Daniel Luria, Editorial Director of Box Office Pro. We have another big episode for you today. We'll be going over the state of the industry remarks from NATO's John Fithian and the MPA's Charles Rivkin, as well as studio presentation recaps of MGM and Warner Brothers. A solid uh, 1920s studio vibe in this episode. I like the history of it. Uh, and we're closing out with an interview with Cinepolis COO, Miguel Nier. But before we get started, here's a word from today's sponsors.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Dolby Laboratories. Elevate your cinema offering with Dolby. Dolby boasts a diverse portfolio of products for every auditorium need, from Dolby Cinema, Dolby's pinnacle movie-going experience, to Dolby Atmos, their premium immersive audio offering, to auditorium packages tailored for any size theater and everything in between. Dolby also offers a full range of audio, imaging, accessibility, and content management solutions designed to give audiences a best-in-class cinema experience. Discover the Dolby difference. Learn more at professional.dolby.com forward slash cinema. This episode is also brought to you by Source by The Box Office Company, the only service to cover what's playing in movie theaters in over 70 countries across the globe. Ever wonder where Google, Microsoft, or other companies get their movie information? Source by The Box Office Company. The biggest movie websites, search engines, and publishers alike all use Source to get people to the movies each and every day. If you are looking for up-to-the-minute movie showtimes, movie posters, or trailers, or if you need historical movie data for consumer app, website, or big data project, Source should be your first call. Contact us at sales at boxoffice.com. We have APIs available for any budget.
1: So... Daniel, before we get to recapping what happened today, there's a lot of interesting information there. Let's go over what's coming up on Wednesday as we're looking forward here. Would you mind going over the schedule a bit?
0: So we start at 8 a.m. here on Wednesday with a presentation from Neon, a breakfast presentation for all intents and purposes. That's followed at 9:30 by the Disney presentation or let's say screening really that's yeah. what it is no
1: one from disney is going to be theirs so. right
0: so it's going to be an advanced screening of shang chi and the legend of the ten rings and then at 4 30 p.m we're going to have another presentation from a studio in this case universal alongside its specialty division focus features rebecca you started the day early on with moderating duties What were your biggest takeaways from your Tuesday morning panel?
1: I have to say my number one takeaway from that panel, which is on rebuilding the cinema industry workforce post-COVID-19, themes of human resources, employee hiring, retention and diversity. My number one takeaway is that I really need caffeine to get started my day. But other than that, we we really did have a wonderful panel with representatives from Maya Cinema AMC and then a consultant, Marissa Kazem, who specializes in diversity and inclusion to really bring that outside of the exhibition industry perspective. You know, we've spoken a lot about the importance of diversity within this industry. And, you know, I can sum it up in one sentence. It's the right thing to do, I think, from a moral standpoint. It's also the right thing to do from a business standpoint. It helps you get good employees. It helps you retain good employees. Just generally speaking, it's the smart thing to do. You know, it was an early panel. I think it gave a lot of food for thought, hopefully, for the people who attended. And also, hopefully, a lot of actionable, workable, realistic ways that you can hire and keep people in a time where not just for the cinema industry, but for many, many industries, it's incredibly difficult to do so.
0: And moving on from that panel, we have the state of the industry remarks from NATO and the Motion Picture Association. Rebecca, this was very different from previous years. Usually it's an opportunity for the MPA, for NATO to go up there, tout box office, both domestically, worldwide. Look at the big picture of the industry as a whole, radically different version of that state of the industry address from both NATO and the MPA, a lot more somber. I think they were very grounded in their statements. They were very serious, but still optimistic,
1: somber and optimistic. And yet I would also add the adjective emphatic. You know, there was a definite rallying of the industry sense that I got from this panel. And well, we have some quotes to that effect. First off, from Charles Rifkin, for more than a 100 years, we have built one of the most successful and iconic industries in human history. And together, we will build an even greater one in the century to come. It's definitely something that I believe is the case. We're both biased, but I mean... Come on, that's the truth. And John Fithian of NATO, I think, got even more specific in some of the, let's politely call it back and forth, that's been happening between the exhibition and the distribution communities.
0: Uh, That's right. John Fithian being very explicit with NATO's stance on supporting theatrical exclusivity. This is his quote, quote, Exclusive release periods remain vital to the survival and success of the theatrical experience. Theatrical windows won't be what they were before, but they can't be what they were during the pandemic either. What the future holds is up to our members and distributors to decide, but let us be clear about one thing. Simultaneous release does not work for anyone A steady flow of strong movies released with exclusive windows is essential to exhibitions recovery and to the profitability of the entire movie ecosystem. That's a quote from John Fithian speaking about theatrical exclusivity at the State of the Industry Address on Tuesday morning. Strong statements. Echoes
1: what we saw from Sony in last night's presentation where, again, they came out very strong in support of movies going to theaters first and exclusively. For some quotes on that, if you haven't been able to catch up with yesterday's episode, there were some quite spicy quotes on there. Tithian didn't use language, let's say, that came up in the Sony presentation, but certainly a strong statement and one that you could definitely sense the approval in the room.
0: And talking about that approval in the room, one of my favorite moments of that State of the Industry Address is when John took the time to recognize two members of the NATO staff that we can vouch because every time we speak to an exhibitor, every time we get into conversations, checking in how people are doing, these two names keep on popping up. John Fifield recognizing Esther Baru and Jackie Brenneman over at NATO for their tireless work in securing government funding. Four exhibitors, it was a great moment and a very strong ovation round of applause yes. for, from the crowd.
1: I believe you referred to them as the, uh, the S-Fog Queens, certainly well-deserved. <laughs> I mean, they, we have
0: to get them T-shirts with that.
1: Yeah, is is it too late? That? Queens. Yeah. Make it happen. Are they, they listening?
0: It'll be a surprise. Don't they worry. They put
1: on just tireless, countless hours of work. And you could really tell that the exhibitors in attendance recognized and appreciated what they had done. That, I agree, that was one of my favorite moments. It was a very, very special moment. Though I do have to say a close runner up to that, typically the, the NATO marquee Award goes to a particular person. This year, that was not the case. We had AMC Theatres, and Aaron, giving that award to just in general, movie theater workers, movie theater employees, the people who A, were furloughed, potentially lost their jobs, were really took the brunt of the harm from COVID from this. But also those are the ones who persevered. Mm -hmm. You know, those are the ones who keep this industry going. And there were several representatives from individual theaters on hand to accept awards, from Regal, from AMC, from different theaters and That was a really, really special moment for me as well.
0: And I think that's the main takeaway from this state of the industry address from NATO. It's usually about box office. This year, it was about jobs. And that's the most important aspect of where this industry is in order to recover. One of the details that occurred in the post-state of the industry press conference between select members of the press and both Fithian and Rifkin was after being asked by our colleague over at Celluloid Junkie, uh, Sperling Reich, about how many screens the United States and Canada stood to lose at the end of this crisis, John was very upfront. He said, quote, we thought we were going to lose half the screens, and we're not. Because of this collective effort of this industry and our government, we may only lose 1,000 screens out of 43,000.
1: That gives me chills, honestly, just to think of what might have happened.
0: But it's a reflection, I think, of the important work that had to happen on the lobbying side. And I know, listen, it's been an extremely taxing 18 months for this industry. And there's been a lot of nervousness, a lot of anxiety. A lot of the role that these industry associations play, they play behind the scenes. It's not really to go out and deliver big statements. That can happen sometimes, but really a lot of the day-to-day work is making sure that the infrastructure for support exists during crises. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think that uh, recognition for both Esther and Jackie during the state of the industry, that really set out for me. And judging from the reaction in the audience, I think it set out for a lot of members as well.
1: It certainly did. And you know, following the state of the industry address, we had the MGM presentation, which I think was fitting because that marquee MGM title, James Bond film, No Time to Die. I mean, that is, it was one of the first, if not Daniel, the first to move down the schedule After it became clear COVID was going to become a real problem. And it's kind of become a a symbol, for better or worse, of when this movie comes out, it'll mean something to this
0: industry. It'll mean something because the first two major titles to move at the start of this were No Time to Die, that still hasn't opened, and Trolls World Tour, that was the first to open on VOD in streaming
1: and caught
0: backlash. A lot of backlash for that. So it gives us an insight into the very different strategies that distribution is applying to theatrical exhibition during this crisis, right? Now, again, it's a situation where some studios are doing this while still putting titles in theaters as a pandemic only move. Others are doing it to really put their streaming strategy front and center during this time. So we can't really say it's a one-size-fits-all policy for everyone or that it's the same strategy that's occurring here. But really, going back to MGM, like you said, Rebecca, they actually kept all of their titles, all of them, on the theatrical slate. And they didn't release them until they were confident that theaters could play them and be open. And that's going to be happening. Michael DeLuca, the studio boss over at MGM, he announced officially that No Time to Die is confirmed for an October theatrical release. That was an important announcement. Aurelius, we're not that far away from that debut, but let's talk about some other titles before we get to Bond. Rebecca, what were some of your highlights from that MGM United Artists presentation?
1: Look, I know right now we're in a period in theatrical exhibition where, for whatever reason, there are a lot of musicals. Some of them work. Some of them don't. I still love a musical and I love director Joe Wright. I think he consistently turns in amazing work. So for me, we were able to see the trailer for Cyrano starring Peter Dinklage, an adaptation of Cyrano de Bergerac. A musical, Joe Wright, Peter Dinklage, three of my favorite things. I mean, come on. It it, it looked, I love a lush costume drama. But then on the other side of things, we have Samaritan with Sylvester Stallone in which he plays an an aging superhero. Knowing your love of the Rocky franchise, Daniel, I'm going to turn this one to you.
0: Rebecca, the way you love costumes is the way I love Mr. Sylvester Stallone. To be honest, this looks like an interesting title. The action looked pretty gritty, pretty intense. I'm just not a huge fan of this type of genre. But looking at the style that it was filmed, it's interesting. I mean, it stood out, it definitely stood out. It has more of a physical action feel of those 1980s movies that Mm -hmm. Stallone was really known for back then. Those movies really don't get made anymore. I'll be curious to see how it turns out, but it's definitely on my radar. Anything else from that MGMUA presentation on your end that stood out?
1: Well, we have a 13 Lives from director Ron Howard about the rescue of the children who were trapped in the mine. It's, I mean, it's Ron Howard. I'm going to show up. He's dependable. He's one of those directors who, you know, I'll see it. I'm in. It's fine. And then, of course, they showed a scene from No Time to Die. Daniel, I know immediately afterwards, you were like, mind blown. Goodness. But I will just say one thing before turning it to you, which is that I cannot imagine watching that for the first time on my TV.
0: That's a great way to put it. I completely agree. It's hard to understand these scenes, especially these action sequences out of context of a film, right? You can see a lot of really well-produced action sequences on their own and have an opinion. So we have to put in that caveat, that asterisk, but what we saw, we saw about seven minutes, in my opinion, This is one of the best action set pieces in Daniel Craig's tenure as James Bond. There's a car chase here that, for me, is the best car chase sequence that I've seen in a Bond movie since Goldfinger. It was really great.
1: I praise.
0: I'm really excited to see it on the big screen. A lot of folks are. And it ended that MGM presentation with a buzz, with an excitement. People came out ready to talk about new movies. It, it raised questions about the relationships
1: between the characters and in, in the films.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it's a really great reaction, I think, from the exhibitors attending the event to the footage from MGM and United Artists. And then let's move on to the second presentation that, Rebecca, you weren't there for, but I did attend here from Warner Brothers. Slightly different reception here, to be honest.
1: You know, we're talking about Warner Brothers here. I'm just going to quiz you once we finish recording this podcast on the minutest of detail with anything that you learned about The Matrix 4. But let's widen the scope a bit. How did this presentation go in the macro sense?
0: It's one of the challenges we thought we were going to see here at CinemaCon 2021 with a pandemic. Again, we understand The people decided not to come. That's completely understandable. At the same time, we can't help but compare studio presentations to one another.
1: I mean, Jason and Ivan Reitman, as we said in yesterday's podcast, they came showed up in person to introduce the first public screening and, of Ghostbusters Afterlife.
0: And you had MGM United Artists come out and introduce a lot of new footage,
1: multiple executives,
0: multiple executives. Again, we don't want to make it seem like it's a criticism If anyone that said, you know what, I'm not comfortable coming. Not at all. That being said, there has to be some sort of alternative that I think is enticing considering the moment. I think Warner Brothers did the best they could, but we didn't have a single Warner Brothers executive in person. Again, understandable in the context. So are they
1: here at the show or you-
0: a couple? Yes, there are several instead. Uh, it was an exhibitor that introduced in person the Warner Brothers presentation. That's uh, Rolando Rodriguez, the chairman of NATO CEO of Marcus theaters. He introduced the Warner Brothers presentation and the video it's difficult. It, it's tough to do these sort of big event, momentous occasion productions with a live audience when you're not really there. I don't think it was particularly well executed.
1: What was the mood in, in the room? What did they say from what way you describe it? It seems kind of generic statement.
0: I'll be of? I'll be upfront. At certain points, there was audible laughter coming from the audience at to what? at what was being said on the video mm-hmm. in introducing some of the footage mm-hmm. it was a scripted thing like these things have to be you have to script them mm-hmm. but it looked stilted it sounded stilted it's a very tough thing to pull off i don't think warner brothers landed it personally
1: so these were statements about i mean i assume given at cinemacon we support theatrical we recognize the importance of theatrical and
0: and really introducing filmmakers that came in to talk about the movies they had on hand, right? We had a couple of filmmakers come in, but let's go down the list of what was introduced during the Warner Brothers presentation. James Wan, original horror film, Malignant. We saw some footage from that. We saw a behind the scenes featurette on Cry Macho, the Clint Eastwood Western that is coming out later this year. Some footage from The Many Saints of Newark, the Sopranos prequel that is also going to be coming out.
1: And please do check out our, our CinemaCon issue if you have not already. Kevin Lally does have an interview with the uh, Alan Taylor, the director of that film. There's some interesting insight there into kind of transitioning the iconic Sopranos into a the feature film format.
0: Then we had some footage from King Richard, the biopic of Venus and Serena Williams starring Will Smith. Rebecca, I was pleasantly surprised by that one. I think of what I saw, this was the title that intrigued me the most. I'm looking forward to this one.
1: I'm ready for Will Smith to come back to get that Oscar. You
0: know,
1: (laughs) he's underappreciated and he's Will Smith, so he's pretty appreciated, but he's still underappreciated.
0: And talking about Will Smith in a separate universe, he would have been in the next footage presentation, as we know. Will Smith turned down the starring rule for The Matrix all those years back. To
1: be in Wild Wild West.
0: Oh, Wiki Wild, Wiki Wild Wild. No. Yeah. Oh, uh, boy. Yeah. That happened. That
1: was a decision he made.
0: We all have regrets in life, but and that's You know one what?
1: We wouldn't have the, the keanu Sans otherwise. And so, he
0: uh, was great in it. And he he looks like he's going to be great in what we saw. The trailer debut, I believe it was a trailer debut. I oh, haven't it not a
1: trailer. If, if there had been a trailer previous to this of Matrix 4.
0: You'd I mean, know about it.
1: I would have known about that.
0: The trailer debut of the Matrix 4, there's actually a subtitle to it. It the, said the, Resurrections. We have a subtitle now. I don't know if that's going to be the official subtitles. I don't know how it's going to play out. But some interesting footage, I have to tell you, it, it was a little interesting. In that trailer, they're really leaning into this whole red-pilled thing. Curious marketing move there and putting that trailer together. You know, at worst, it's going to hit very well in like all the WhatsApp chat groups with relatives I don't speak with anymore. They're muted in my phone somewhere. But for any fans of red-pill memes, you got a great movie campaign coming with you this matrix sequel. you know
1: what if warner brothers can trick the red pill crowd into really loving a film by two trans women then i i'll count that as a, i'll take that as a silver lining
0: that's a good subversive twist on what this project <laughs> might mean but uh moving on to another big ip in the warner brothers stable we had nothing new here really it looked like the trailer i've already seen for the batman the matt reeves Can we call it a reboot? I don't even know what's a reboot and a remake anymore. It's just another movie with a Batman guy. Yeah. But it's there. There's a Batman in it. And uh, I don't know, maybe some other Batman friends. You know how it goes. We'll see how the movie turns out. Darker tone, as I think these movies tend to always go either full camp or a little bit darker. It's
1: directed by, by Matt Reeves, right? I like him. He does good work. I'm excited.
0: For he did it. those those Planet of the Apes reboot equals. I like them. I and like them just fine. Similarly, we have
1: uh, Denis Villeneuve, to another Warner Brothers staple. You know, who has Dune coming out late this year. Quick shout out to our co-host Russ Fisher. Wasn't able to be here at CinemaCon, but I, you know, I'm gonna say number one Dune fan. What did we see from Dune? Because because that's their big. Holiday
0: release, right? Well, the first thing we saw or was
1: October, but uh, yeah, uh, moving into that season.
0: Yeah, the first thing we saw there was Timothy Chalamet's dreamy eyes introducing footage from Dune. We actually got to see an entire scene from Dune. It was something interesting. I was curious if we were going to get to hear from Dune director Dennis Villeneuve, who has been extremely outspoken against the Warner Brothers. HBO Max decision to go day and date
1: ticked off, not just once, but it's been in the press again,
0: several times.
1: He's not, he's not backing down on
0: it. He is. And so I was curious to see, do we get to hear from him? And a little bit of background here, Rebecca and I reached out to try to see if we could get an interview with Denis Villeneuve for the CinemaCon issue, knowing his commitment to movie theaters. Unfortunately, we got as far as you saw the actual film, you know, in advance. Unfortunately, it looks like scheduling concerns were to blame for that, unfortunate. And that's why I was surprised to see Denis Villeneuve actually show up in this video presentation. He was very, let's say, diplomatic in his words, uh, very measured statements, very different Denis Villeneuve that we've seen in the press. But he was there, you know, basically thanking exhibitors and delivering This scene from Dune, which still looks like a very interesting title.
1: I cannot obviously say anything about the film itself, but just speaking to his previous films, things like, I mean, I'm thinking specifically of Arrival, shot beautifully, a big screen film, an IMAX film, I mean, my goodness. So that's, I'm not going to say anything, but I will say big screen on this one, please.
0: Yeah. Please. I think you're not the only one saying it. The filmmaker's been very, very vocal about it as well. So that will hit theaters and HBO Max in October. And yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing how this slate of Warner Brothers titles does really for the rest of this year. Some interesting movies here. And, you know, we had some of those representatives on the video talking about Some of those 2022 titles, unfortunately, we really didn't get to see much other than mentions, but we'll have an opportunity to see that in April at the next CinemaCon. But, of course, before we do, there's still a lot to talk about here on the Box Office podcast. We have our feature interview with Cinepolis COO Miguel Mier, who has spent 26 years at the Mexican Circuit. Rebecca, this was a great conversation. Miguel has been with the company throughout its international growth over the last two-plus decades. We had a far-reaching conversation about where the Latin American film industry is right now during the pandemic and some of the lessons that a multinational exhibitor like Cinepolis has learned during this crisis. So that is coming up for you right now. Thank you again for joining us on the Box Office Podcast. May, may
1: I say just, just one final note, as you record this podcast, Daniel is in fact wearing movie theater popcorn socks.
0: Ah, you you exposed me. Yep right as we're going to the interview.
1: It's a good thing.
0: Well, at least Miguel didn't see me wearing these things.
1: They're good socks. I know that Miguel would probably enjoy them.
0: He's more of a pinstripes guy. If you see him around the halls here, pinstripes, it's Miguel Mier. So without further ado, our interview with Miguel Mier, COO of Cinepolis. Miguel Mier, welcome here to the Box Office Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. A lot of topics to cover, but let's start, I guess, looking back on a very crazy and unexpected last year and a half here in the industry. From your perspective, as one of the top exhibitors in Latin America, how has this pandemic affected the region and moviegoing in the region as a whole?
2: Well, thank you, Daniel. Thank you for this podcast. I'm so delighted to be sharing uh, these ideas and these thoughts in such a timely manner, because this year is so relevant for the rebirth of the industry that it will impact our lives in so many ways, out of which one is going to be entertainment and the exhibition experience. But uh, the way in which this pandemic has impacted our our lives, our families, our schools, our pretty much everything around our lives has been so relevant that it somehow shadows what we have been and are experiencing in the industry. But let's say that in Latin America, the ways in which This pandemic has been approached, has been so different that somehow bring us the learning that there's not only one way to approach situations or problems. You can be creative and you can learn things that have worked in one market and bring them to other markets. We have great examples in Asia. Uh, We have great examples in China, in Japan, in India that we can learn from. And we can adopt those best practices in not only Mexico, but in the whole, Latin American region.
0: Now, every country is in a different time frame here in terms of recovery. So it's very different every time we speak with a multinational exhibitor like Sinapolis that, well, obviously you have a U.S. presence where vaccination is at a certain advanced rate. When you compare that to the crises that you have in India, where you also have a presence in your circuit and obviously in large parts of Latin America, what challenges still face the Cinepolis global circuit today as we move into the second half of 2021.
2: Stability is the main challenge in the different markets. You mentioned India, and that was one of the markets where when the pandemic was pretty heavily hitting the European markets, India was doing quite well. Actually, they even launched some new titles that were quite successful in Tamil Nadu in the south of India. They launched Master 2 that did amazing box office numbers. But suddenly, the Delta variant hit hard the country, and then everything stopped again. And now we're seeing how India is little by little getting back on its feet, but we see Latin America hitting very, very strong with the Delta variant. So I would say the lack of stability, I mean, of being able to foresee the future and to present to our boards, I guess pretty much every other cinema company is facing the same. But when we are facing our board members, the huge uncertainty that we are presenting is an issue but At least in the case of the Cinepolis board members, they understand the complexity of the world and the complexity of the situation that we are living. And I would say that we all within Cinepolis believe that there's a strong and bright future for the exhibition industry worldwide. But once we reach that stability, once vaccinations are prevailing around the globe, we will start seeing the rebirth of the exhibition business.
0: Now, of course, one of the challenges that you're facing overlooking operations at a global cinema circuit is what best practices and what you institute across your international markets as this situation evolves, right? Sometimes you have good months in one market, bad months in the other. What are those operational and best practices lessons you picked up and implemented circuit-wide since the start of the pandemic?
2: Well, I would say, first of all, Communication, heavy communication with every team member around the different regions. The other is training, training our teams to create and generate the safest possible environments everywhere. And not only in the cinemas, but also at their homes, because we want to not only have our Cinepolites being safe, but also their families So a lot of training, a lot of information, and a lot of diagnosis as well, and information that comes back. If we see any case, let's say in any of our offices around the globe, we want to see how they are doing, how can we help them or their families. And having this very strong ties of communication, I think has been one of the great Learnings and one thing that we have been exercising heavily. And that would be a skill for the future, I would say. We are a company that is tighter, closer together.
0: And of course, one of those operational challenges is communicating with audiences in different markets when the movie going experience comes back right? That's a very sensitive message to make, especially when you have different cultural things you have to keep in mind, different caseloads in different places. Could you tell me about that experience in Cinepolis' strategy in getting back to your moviegoers and letting them know what you guys are doing as a circuit to keep them safe at the movies?
2: I think it's a great question, Daniel, and I would think about it in two ways. One is, I think that us as an industry, Everybody, I mean, as a whole industry, we haven't been able to communicate loud and clear one simple message, which is the cinema is one of the safest environments where you can have entertainment. We have to be able to communicate this simple message. Cinema is a low-risk environment to go and to have entertainment. And you need to have entertainment in order to have a society that is a healthy society in terms of their mind and of their psyche. So people need entertainment, and the safest place to go and have entertainment is a cinema. That's number one in terms of challenges of communication. But the flip side of that is that Every local authority has a different take on what's safe and what to do. So we try to generate messages that can be accommodated in the different legal frameworks that we have Not only from a national perspective, but also from a state and sometimes from a community perspective, because we have majors of different cities that think differently, even if they're in the same state. And we have to accommodate and to comply with the different rules that these different heads of a community think about what's safe and what's not.
0: Is there a time frame that you expect, at least in Latin America, for the cinema industry to get back to something a little bit more recognizable. Maybe not 2019 levels, but something close to it,
2: for the end of the year, we think that we will be having our cinemas back in their feet with a lot more percentage of the population vaccined. And maybe people are still going to be infected with COVID, but the reactions and the gravity of those infections are not going to be that hard. So we will start seeing audiences flocking back to cinemas in a way that looks more like the previous normality, I would say, around the end of the year.
0: As I was preparing today, I realized that at Cinepolis, you've as a circuit dealt with maybe not pandemics, but epidemics in the recent past as well. You had the H1N1 epidemic in Mexico that also caused closures, that also caused a lot of concern. Fortunately, it was localized. The vaccine came a little bit faster. We didn't have the challenges we're seeing here at a global level. Could you
2: talk about what you learned from that experience? I've been 26 years in this company and never saw something similar to the H1N1 that today, looks like, I mean, like a minuscule thing compared with uh, A weekend vacation Godzilla. compared to what we're doing with <laughs> Yes, Godzilla is probably an
0: appropriate situation we have now.
2: Exactly. It's like chickadee versus Godzilla <laughs> to what we are seeing now, right? But back then, it was a huge phenomenon. And we have all of our cinemas. I remember we had them shut down 17 days, mm-hmm. which was... I mean unheard a huge of number. Right, right. Unheard of. And in order for things to go back, even though the content was flowing mm-hmm. globally because it was localized in Mexico, and I remember that we were going to open Wolverine. Mm-hmm. And even Hugh Jackman was thinking of traveling to Mexico. But anyway, the point is that to recover after those 17 days of, of shutdown, it took something around four weeks, which Again, for us, was a huge recovery. But if we compare those 17 days with the more than year and a half that we have been shut down in Peru, in Peru, we haven't been able to open. Wow! In Colombia, we've just reopened recently. So we've been more than 18 months closed in some markets compared to the 17 days. And it took four weeks to recover well. But then somehow the country forgot about that. When people feel safe, right, it's quite easy to go back to your habits. And that's why we strongly believe that our industry will recover and we will see brighter days for our industry. We don't have a doubt about it, but... First, we have to get things straight, as you said. Now we are waiting for vaccines and wait for the rollout of those vaccines. But once that somehow solves the gravity of the problem and brings some level of comfort in societies, we will see audiences flocking back to the cinemas. But that's a great example to remember that pandemic that shut down cinemas in Mexico for 17 days.
0: Now, if you talk to people in Mexico, it seems like a distant memory. It was something like, oh yeah, I kind of remember that. But at the time, we're talking about 17 days, very similar to the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. I remember when I started talking to my colleagues saying like, wait, this seems like something I went through. This seems like something my family and I went through in Mexico City, in Mexico, some 10 years back. But yeah, it's a huge problem. It's a huge impact. But like you say, it's important to remember that once normality returns, those behaviors come back faster than you expect. Now, of course, this is going to leave a huge scar globally for a lot of people in society. But like you, I agree that we can't lose sight of what we can recover. You mentioned a second ago, it's 50 years of Cinepolis. You've been there for 26. Can you tell us a little bit about your own approach in working with this company and how that experience came to be and how this company has grown through that last 26 years that you've been there.
2: I joined the company in 1994. I was 21 years old. I was just getting out of college, and it was my first job. I studied economics in Monterrey, the northern part of Mexico, and my first job was in technology. I was the manager of technology here within Cinepolis when there was pretty much no technology at all. Imagine this regional Mexican company, family-owned, privately held. Since I joined the company, we've been evolving from a company of 320 screens in a region of Mexico to 6,700 screens in 19 countries in four continents through these 26 years. But I mean, the company has... 50 years of history, of growth, and of discipline, and trying to always put the consumer in the center of our decisions. And I think that those have been the DNA that had created innovation within the industry. We were the first in bringing stadium seating into Latin America. We were the first in bringing IMAX formats in the region. We were the first in doing VIP auditoriums more than 24 Three years ago, more than many of the more developed markets, we were the first in doing, for example, live streaming of soccer games in in our auditoriums. We were the first in bringing 4D technology to our cinemas. And we were the first in selling via our app with reserved seats. In all of our Cinepolis worldwide, we sell reserved seats. And we've been doing this for more than a decade. And so we'd like to think that in spite of the fact that our industry has 120 years old and many people might think that the cinema industry is not that innovative we like to think of ourselves that we can find ways to innovate the experience of our of our consumers
0: what sort of innovations has cinepolis focused on during this period that you think will remain in place once we achieve that normality we're talking about
2: people like popcorn at home. And we've seen how taking popcorn from our cinemas through the different apps and the different ways in which people are getting products, home delivery, popcorn has been one of the products that have been really successful in Mexico. So I see that trend remaining when people want, I mean, even if they just have uh, want to hang out at someone's Place And even though they're not going to watch a movie just to hang out, popcorn has become a product that's available for large audiences in Mexico and Latin America. That would be one. Secondly, I would say the relationship through technology. I strongly believe that technology has been an enabler for the comeback. Uh, People want to see what's going on in the cinema through our apps and through all the different digital platforms that we have. And that will also help contactless interactions between customers and cinemas and customers and concessions. And somehow the relationship with the consumer, I think is going to shift based on technology. Those are the two trends. More of our product's presence at home and more technology in the relationship between the consumer and, and us exhibition companies.
0: And that's something that Cinepolis has been very active on. If we look, even at the convergence of those two aspects with something like Cinepolis Click, the video on demand app that Cinepolis was one of the pioneers in instituting a VOD strategy, especially among any media company in Mexico, in bringing your brand to the home and bringing that sort of leadership in the entertainment sector and expanding it outside of your physical locations, whether that's popcorn or whether that's watching entertainment. I think that's something that it'll be very interesting to see how other circuits and how other entertainment brands adapt those lessons as we emerge from this pandemic.
2: True. I think it's a great comment, Daniel, but because somehow our interaction with our community, with our consumer base, remained through Cinepolis Click. But also an interesting fact about Cinepolis Click is that we started showing additional content, not only movies. And we started showing some concerts and some musical content, Latin American musical content. And that also drove a phenomenon in Mexico that one of the pieces of content that really boosted the comeback of audiences to the cinemas was the BTS concert, this K-pop band from Korea that when we showed it in the cinemas, and I'm not talking right now about Cinepolis Click, when we showed it in the cinemas, the fan base of BTS went flocking our screens, And we think that there's a little bit of a link there between what we provided at home of music and concerts with the BTS phenomenon was something that somehow says, if you have good content, people will be even willing to go and leave their couches and go to cinemas and watch content that's relevant for them.
0: As you look back, what have been the biggest achievements and the biggest challenges during your tenure that you've seen at the company?
2: I would start with the latter and by far what we are experiencing right now is the biggest challenge that I think our industry has ever seen and we will need to recover and we need to be really smart to find our way out of this challenge. So I never expected to be facing and to be dealing with a crisis so deep like the one that we are facing But as I said, and as I mentioned, we are positive that we are going to be out of this crisis sooner than later. And in terms of the successes that we have reached, I would say the international expansion. But to get there, first, we had to be really good in our domestic market. And I would say, using Stephen Hawking's words, a brief history of time in our industry would be from the 1990s, 1994, when the Mexican, I would say Latin American exhibition industry opened to the international companies to jump in the market. All that was a tectonic shift in the competitive landscape of the exhibition business in Latin America. And many local companies died in the evolution process, but some were able to rise to the challenge. In Mexico in the 90s, in the mid-90s, four out of the 10 largest U.S. companies entered the market, cinema, general cinema. AMC. And we also have Hoyts from Australia, reaching the Mexican market. And we have a bunch of local regional circuits. And some of those are not still in business, but some of us that prevailed were able not only to be competitive in our homeland, in our own turf, but also go and expand those capabilities that we learned through the decade of the 90s and through the 2000s and when we were able to be competitive within our Mexican market, we started expanding to Central America and to the northern part of South America. And then we did the big leaps when we decided to go to India, Brazil, US, Spain, and in the Middle Eastern countries. But I would say that one of the most relevant achievements of Cinepolis in the past three decades have been the international Expansion. And I would just mention another one that would be the financial, the very disciplined financial management. And I would even put the word conservative financial management of the company that has made us being able to grow without being heavily levered and has made us have enough resources to think that we have a future, a solid future, in order to recover from this super challenging era that we are living currently.
0: You mentioned tectonic shift in 1994. I can tell you, I'm from Querétaro, town for our listeners, in, in the a city, in, in the center of Mexico, about three hours drive from Mexico City. First multiplex, the first modern multiplex there opened in 1995. I believe it was either in, in the summer or early fall. And that's the first modern multiplex I attended. And it really, really changed culturally I think, the Mexican audience's relationship with going to the cinema, which had always been there. Of course, you see a movie like Roma from Alfonso Cuaron. You see these old big cinema palaces, the, the fact that movie going was always a big part of Mexican culture. But that changed. Those words, tectonic shift in those mid-90s, really changed, I think, for a lot of us and a lot of our careers. I can say my own career as well. That's when I first started being interested in movie going and going to the cinemas and sort of poking around and eventually making a career out of it myself.
2: And Daniel should I give your audience the name of that cinema in 1995? <laughs> it was Cinemark Plaza Bulevares.
0: Yeah exactly.
2: I mean absolutely. You you know it you know it exactly. Yeah. I know exactly the place. I know exact. I, I was there that summer because as you mentioned it was such a tectonic change that I had to go to Querétaro and I had to go to Cinemark Plaza Bulevares close to Take the Monterrey to the mm-hmm. this big college, private college in the city of Querétaro. And it was, I mean, the place to go. Mm-hmm. And we, over time, had to be competitive enough to do things as good and try to do it a little bit even better than these huge uh, international companies that were entering a Latin American country like Mexico. So I think that your Queretar example is an amazing one to show a mid-sized city in a Latin American country that faced the best of breed back then in the exhibition uh, world, and from there to try to develop tools to compete, not only for the Querétaro market or the Mexico market, but also overseas.